Well, certainly good to be with you this evening. I'm very thankful for the invitation to be able to come over and participate in this meeting and, and to talk with you from God's Word and to, uh, to hopefully be able to say some things that will encourage you as a Christian, will help you to uh, do better in your walk with, with uh, Jesus Christ. And I'm very thankful to be here. Is this, is this on, Kyle, or am I, am I not? I was getting a lot of funny looks. I was telling, I was telling everybody, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> but it is good. I see a lot of people here. It's very special to me, and I'm very thankful you're here. We're going to get right into the lesson this evening. I, I, I'm happy for Kyle. I, I really like Kyle, and I've thought a lot of him for a long time. I think he's, you know, this. He's going to do an excellent work here, and I appreciate him a whole lot. Difficulty breathing, especially at night without exertion, inability to perform normal activities due to weakness or fatigue, lightheadedness or fainting, irregular heartbeat, blue coloring due to low levels of oxygen in the blood. If you were to begin to experience these symptoms on a regular basis, how would you respond? I would imagine that we all at least acknowledge that there was something going on. There was an underlying problem that was the cause of these symptoms. These things aren't normal in the life of a healthy person. In 1999, I began experiencing extreme pain in my abdomen, and, and I toughed it out for a few days, but I finally gave in and went to the doctor, and, and to make a long story short, my appendix had ruptured. Uh, infection had begun to set up around my organs, and I nearly died. Had I ignored those symptoms and those things that was going on and not investigated what was causing that, I certainly wouldn't be here before you today. The symptoms listed here are all symptoms of one who, had, who may have some type of heart disease. And if these symptoms are ignored and the cause is not investigated and then treated, then that diseased heart will eventually take your life. And I would suggest to you this evening that within a local church, many times there are symptoms that arise and these symptoms are indicators of a serious spiritual disease within that local body. And if we ignore those symptoms and we, we do not acknowledge and investigate and treat those problems, then the local body of Christ of which we are members of will in due course of time die and we will be lost as members. Would you consider for a moment these symptoms? Inept knowledge of the Bible, unable to discern between good from evil, failure to practice church discipline, indifferent towards sin, immorality, dress, entertainment, activities, no accountability, members absent or involved in habitual sin and everyone keeps silent, complacency, checklist Christianity we'll call it. If we were begin to experience these symptoms in our local church, we ask the same question, how would we respond? Are these things that would, we would consider normal in a healthy church? The answer would be no. These are not things that are found in a healthy church. So we must come to the conclusion, if we see things such as this, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, we could make a list much longer, much larger than this. But if we, if we see things such as this, we must come to the conclusion, if this is not signs of a healthy church, then there is an underlying condition, there is a problem. In the context of our study this evening, the underlying condition is a heart problem. Local churches where these symptoms or others such as these would arise indicate that the heart is not functioning properly. I want you to consider for a moment the, the function of the human heart. Human heart pumps blood throughout the body via the circulatory system, supplying oxygen and nutrients to the tissues <coughs> 
removing carbon dioxide and other lakes. The tissues of the body need a constant supply of nutrition in order to be active, said Dr. Lawrence Phillips, cardiologist, NYU Lagon Medical Center in New York. The heart is not able to supply blood to the organs and tissues. They will die. Two key words in this brief explanation of the function of the heart that we want to focus on in our study this evening, and those are the words supplying and removing. If the heart is not able to supply the blood that it needs to the organs and tissues where this supplying of nutrients and removal of carbon dioxide and other waste takes place, the organs will die. The parallel is very simple here. The heart of a dying church is one that is failing in the areas of supplying and removing. There are things, there are good things that need to be supplied. There are good things that there needs to be a constant, a constant flow of in a church that is healthy and that is thriving. And there also needs to be things that need to be removed, things that need to be taken out and cast out in order for that church to be heart healthy. So when we see some of the symptoms that we mentioned a moment ago in churches, we can understand that when those things are there, there is a failure in the department of supplying and removing. But who is it that is responsible for this failure? We may ask this question, who or what is the heart of the church? In the context of our study this evening, we know that Jesus is not the heart of the church. And Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, there in regards to Jesus, the Father is said to have put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There's never a time that he does not fulfill his role as head perfectly and completely, meaning that it is not Jesus who is failing to supply and remove the things that need to be supplied and removed in our local churches. Jesus made a promise in Matthew chapter 16 as he comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked, he asked his disciples, said, who do men say that I, I am? And he says, well, some say some, uh, John the Baptist and some say Jeremiah, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And then and Jesus goes on to say, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter there makes that great confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God and that he would go on to build his church upon that great confession that Jesus was the Christ and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And despite man's best effort to, to tear down the, tr the church and destroy the church, uh, the church that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died for cannot die. Jesus made that promise in Matthew chapter 16. However, on a local level, where a group of Christians assemble in a certain location to carry out the work of the gospel within that local church, that church certainly may find itself in a situation where it is dying or where it, where it is dead, but that in no way is a reflection on its head, Jesus Christ. We need to look no further than the book of Revelation. As we looked at these churches, these seven churches of Asia, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, they were, they were warned to repent. Well, remember, they had lost their first love, and if they did not repent, Jesus says, I'll come and I will remove your lampstand. Go and see the church at Pergamon. They, they likewise were told to repent or else I'll come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. The church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 verse 22. There again the instruction is much of the same. Indeed I will cast her, referencing Jezebel, the prophetess Jezebel, into her sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. The church at Sardis was said to be a dead church. They, they thought that they were alive but Jesus says you are dead. Again, they have the same admonition to repent. In the lukewarm Laodiceans, the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, you say that you are rich, you say that you have become wealthy, that you have need of nothing, but Jesus says you are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the instruction, once again, in verse 19, is to be zealous and to repent. 
In some of these local churches, there were those there who was doing the right thing, and Jesus seeks to encourage those members of his body to hang on. But many of these churches were dying. Many of these churches were dying, and one was already said to be dead. Now, there were various contributing factors. If we studied out each one of these churches, we would find a lack of love. We would find false teaching. We would find sexual immorality. We would find complacency. But whatever the symptom was, it pointed to an underlying problem. It pointed to an unhealthy heart, which is another way of saying that these symptoms indicated that there was an unhealthy membership. The individual Christians who made up these local churches, who Jesus rebuked, had within them members who were spiritually sick. So in defining what the heart of the church is in regards to our study this evening, the heart of the church is simply the people who make up that church. And I think Brother Brother Pope alluded to that in his comments there just a moment ago. Therefore, if a local church is dying spiritually, and the individual Christians who make up that church are dying spiritually, if we want to take it even further, we could say the heart of a dying church is a local church whose members are not supplying the things that are essential to the success and health of their spiritual life and are failing to remove those things that need to be removed in order that they may be fruitful and healthy Christians. So as we begin to define this and think about who the heart of the church is, it's the people, it's you and I. We are the ones, when the church is failing, it's not Jesus, it's not our head. Jesus fulfills his role completely and perfectly. When a church is struggling on the local level, we can point it back to the individual members who make up that church. So to stop a church from dying and to deal with the symptoms that point to the demise of a local church, the heart of that local church must be addressed, which means each individual Christian, Jay, needs to be addressed. I need to look into my heart, I need to do self-examination, and I need to see exactly where it is that I'm falling short in my life so that I can help the local church that I'm part of be a heart-healthy church. So while we have a collective responsibility, a lot of times we get this backwards, we'll see problems in the church, and we try, we try to solve it in the confines of the, of the four walls that we have as if that's the problem inside the church. But that's not really the problem. If there's problems going on from a collective standpoint, then we have to look individually into our hearts and work on dealing with ourselves. We aren't going to be successful collectively until we deal with the problem that we have on an individual level. So we understand a collective group is made up of individual people. So when we strive individually to be the very best soldier of Jesus Christ that we can be, when we are striving and we are working hard for the cause of Christ, then we come together as a group, each one having done that. We're not going to be a dying church. We're not going to be a dead church. We're going to be a church that is alive and a church that is thriving and working hard. So the way I'm going to approach this lesson this evening is from the standpoint of looking at some things that must be in constant supply in our lives as individual Christians and likewise some things that we must remove from our lives as individuals because if the members who make up that local church that you're a part of is not supplying and removing in their individual lives, then there's going to be no supplying and removing collectively as a local church. Now, the heart is said to supply nutrients and oxygen to the tissues of the body. Nutrients are substances we know that, that provides nourishment, essential for growth and the maintenance of life. So, so what we want to do is, want, and Kyle asked to kind of focus on the physical things that the heart does and, and make the parallel. So what we're going to do is we want to answer this question. What spiritual nutrients provide nourishment, essential for growth and maintenance in our spiritual life? So we're going to tackle this from the individual standpoint. I'm going, to, I'm going to examine myself this evening as I have the last uh, few weeks in putting this sermon together and, and looking into my heart and seeing where is it that I'm falling short? Am I doing the things that I need to be doing? Do I have the things that needed to be supplied in my life 
am I allowing those things to come in that so then I can in turn work in my local work and help that church grow? And we're not going to have an exhaustive list. We're going to talk about two things that we need to supply, and then we're going to talk about two things that we definitely need to remove from our lives as Christians. Number one, we suggest to you that we need to have a steady diet of the Word of God in our lives. In Hosea chapter 4, God speaks through the prophet Hosea, and he brings a charge there against them, the inhabitants of the land. And within this charge, he speaks of the absence of knowledge. Verse 1, he says, there is no truth, mercy, or knowledge of God in the land. Then he goes on in verse number 6, and he says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I also will reject thee. Now, if we're going over to Hebrews chapter 5, in Hebrews chapter 5 there, as the Hebrew writer is in the midst of talking about Melchizedek, he pauses for a moment there to deal with an issue regarding the lack of knowledge and the lack of teaching ability that these Hebrew Christians had. And the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 11, he says, We have a lot more to say about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a high priest, and Jesus being after the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, we have a lot more to say about Melchizedek. He says, but it, it's hard for us to explain that since you have become dull of hearing. He says in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. These Hebrew Christians were dangerously close to turning away from Christianity and going back to Judaism. That was their sin. That was their problem. They were about to turn back to Judaism after, after tasting the, uh, the, 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 the gift of the precious blood of Jesus Christ and becoming children of God. They were about to turn back to Judaism here. And, and we see the problem that they had here was due to their spiritual immaturity. They were going back. And I believe that was the greatest cause of their falling away, their backsliding here. They'd become dull of hearing. And this Greek word is found again here in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. And there it's translated as sluggish. Other translations will use the word slothful, lazy, lethargic. And that's what these Christians had become here, in, in these Hebrew Christians that we're studying about here in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. The old King James uses that word lazy. So these Hebrew Christians had found themselves in the position that they were in because they had become lazy in their hearing of the word of God. Now, if I'm slothful, if I'm sluggish, if I'm lazy and dull in hearing the word of God, I can't expect to be strong in my knowledge, can I? I can't expect to have a knowledge that, that is growing, that is, that is helping me be what I need to be as a child of God. Now, if I'm not strong in my knowledge of God's word, I can't expect to be strong in my faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says that our faith comes from hearing the word of God. So when my faith is weak, I'm very likely to find myself dangerously close to falling away, turning away from Jesus and going back into the world. That's what these Hebrew Christians were about to do here. What does that mean then for the local church that I'm a part of? If this is me in my, in my individual life as a Christian, if I'm not mature and if I'm not growing, those who were considered to have been destroyed in Hosea chapter 4 were in ruins in regards to their knowledge. As children of God, they weren't receiving the spiritual nutrients that they needed in order to be what they needed to be, and collectively as a people, they were in ruins. They were, they were about to be destroyed here. It wasn't God's fault. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 says, Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I also will reject thee. So their lack of knowledge was due to their rejection of it. The people of God, spoken of in Hosea, could have been strong, vibrant children of God had they individually chosen to embrace the knowledge of God's will and way for their life. But instead, they rejected it. Those in the book of Hebrews could have been in a state where they were strong, 
where they were firm in their relationship with Jesus Christ had they individually been diligent in their commitment to his word, but they had become lazy. They had become slothful in their hearing of the word of God. And in both instances, it was rejection and laziness, rejection and slothfulness on behalf of the individuals. And it resulted in people who were described as being destroyed, people who could not discern between good and evil. Hence, collectively, at best, they were dying, if not already dead. The same is true in regards to the local church that you and I are a part of. Each individual member of that body of Christ must be diligently studying the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The inspired Scriptures is going to complete us. It's going to equip us. It's going to give us the knowledge that we need as individuals to be what we need to be for God so that when we come together, we can be a strong united front. When you have Christians who has this dedication and then they come together, they have this deep appreciation of the word of God, then they come together, you're going to find a church that is strong and vibrant because the heart of that church is strong and vibrant. Here's some things that will automatically be true. Evangelism will be strong. Teaching within our assemblies will be strong. The threat of false teaching deceiving the flock will be weak. Leadership will be strong. And we can go on and on and on with this list and just thinking about different things that's going to be true when there is a consistent supply of the word of God in the heart in the individuals in a local church. Number two, I would suggest to you that there must be consistency in our individual prayer life. Prayer is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. We have the opportunity to be able to talk to our creator, to lay our fears and our doubts at his feet, ask for his guidance and his deliverance. We can petition him in helping us in our studies of his word. We can make an appeal to him on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe the most neglected of these occasions is we have the opportunity to praise God. We have the opportunity just to tell him how much we love him and how much he means to us just because of who he is. If we want a strong, thriving church, we must be a church that has a praying heart, meaning that the individual Christians who make up our local work, we must be... We must be consistently spending time, quality time, in prayer, talking to our Heavenly Father. We need to resemble a brother that Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Epaphras there, he says, He is one of you, a bondservant of Christ. He greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a powerful statement. I don't know that I'd ever appreciated that statement before in Colossians 4.12, laboring fervently, always laboring fervently in prayer. The words laboring fervently is found seven times in the New Testament. It appears to be one Greek word. It means to endeavor, strenuous zeal, strive to obtain something. A couple of alternate translations of CV says, he always prays hard that you may fully know what the Lord wants you to do, that you may do it completely. God's Word translation, he always prays intensely for you. He prays that you will continue to be mature and completely convinced of everything that God wants. How would you describe your prayer life? Can our prayer life be described as one that can be said is laboring fervently? Sometimes when I think about laboring fervently, I think about a gospel preacher. I think we think, may think along those lines many times, proclaiming the gospel. And that's certainly true. Yeah, that's a good thought for us to have. But when was the last time you thought of someone laboring fervently in regards to prayer? Yeah, that, that's really, I, I don't know that I'd ever thought about it from that standpoint. This was a man who was striving 
he was endeavoring with great zeal and passion in regards to prayer. Note also Paul writes, this is something that he always does, which means he prays without ceasing. This passion and zeal that this brother had in regards to, to talking to his heavenly father, to his petitioning his father, was something that he did on a regular basis. I would imagine that we all have, have been passionate in certain times in our life. With tragedy or something has come up or we just have something going on and we've been very passionate and zealous in prayer, talking to God during these heartaches and trials. But can it be said that this is something that we're constant in, something we're always doing in our Christian life? that we're always labor, uh, fervently laboring in prayer. And his specific purpose behind this fervent prayer was that you, his brothers and sisters in Christ, may stand perfect and complete in all of the will of God. I want you to think about the local church that you're part of here tonight. There are several congregations represented here tonight. What if it could be said that within that local church, that each individual member that makes up that local church was always laboring fervently in prayer? that their brothers and sisters in Christ that they worship with may stand perfect and complete in the will of God, how successful would that church be? And maybe that happens where you worship at. But if it's not, think about how successful a church would be if, if on the individual level that each individual member who made up those local works was fulfilling this responsibility here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, laboring fervently in prayer. You know, when we as individual Christians are endeavoring with great zeal and passion in our prayer life, when we are, when we are praying for spiritual maturity of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supplying something that is essential to the growth of the church. To have a church that's laboring fervently in prayer, the heart of that church must be doing that, which means those individual Christians need to be spending meaningful time on their knees in prayer to our great Creator. That's something that I think I can speak for myself that I, I need to do better. I need to be spending more time on my knees in prayer to God, thanking Him and praising Him. I'm just asking Him all the time to help me through this and help me do that or help me with this problem, but just praising Him and giving Him the glory and honor that He deserves. Now, when this is the case, we'll be a church that resembles a church that we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 31. Turn over your Bibles with me there. Acts chapter 4. Verses 21 through 34. I love the early church. I love the way they responded to persecution. After being taken into custody and threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus, they're told not to preach. And Peter's very bold. He says, we're going to preach in the name of Jesus, whether it's right in your eyes or not. Peter says, we're going to do this. But they are finally let go. And Peter and John reported everything that had happened to them there. They'd healed the lame man at the gate beautiful and he was looking for some alms, and Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the rise and walk. And that's what got all of this started, and Peter preaches these great gospel sermons. But notice, notice the response of the church here in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 31, these disciples of Christ, when they hear what it is that had taken place. It says in verse number 24, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Then they say, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. 
by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they all spoke the word of God with boldness. These disciples lifted up their voice with one accord. They knew that Jesus Christ crucified was the message. You really had one of two choices here. This persecution in the early church was about to just take off and it already started. So you really had one of two choices. Jesus Christ crucified was the message. The resurrection of Jesus had everyone worked up. So they were told really essentially not to preach the resurrection of Jesus anymore. But if you take the resurrection out of Jesus Christ, you have nothing. You have, you have no hope. You have, Paul says that if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that we are of all men most miserable. So the, these early Christians had a couple of options here. They could, they could renounce Christianity or they could take the message and just totally just turn it upside down and just, and just please men here. But then you're left with nothing. So they understood that Jesus Christ crucified was the message. They also understood, understood that, that if they continued to preach this message, Jesus Christ crucified, that, that they were going to experience all sorts of opposition. They, they were going to have persecution that we can't even begin to imagine. So what did they pray about? How many times have you prayed, Lord, keep us out of harm's way? Lord, keep us, keep us from persecution. Make our path smooth. They, they didn't pray that here. They knew that this was the message. Really what they were praying is, Lord, while we're in harm's way, help us to be bold to speak your word. I want you to think about that for a moment. They weren't praying, Lord... While we're in harm's way, keep us safe. They, they knew what was coming. It was inevitable that this persecution was going to come on the early church, but these people were praying people. They were individuals who labored fervently in prayer. They had their minds right. They, they knew what their goal was. This assembly of disciples praying this prayer was strong because the group of individual Christians who made up this group were zealous and passionate in prayer. They, they pray, Lord, just help us be bold to speak your word. Now, when this is true among Christians, again, we're going to see these things. When prayer is consistent in the heart of local church, others' needs will be addressed, our fears will be relieved, our God will be glorified, and courage to speak the word will be given. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. So these are two things, and again, we can make a list a mile long of things that need to be supplied in our Christian life. But these are two very important things that are absolutely essential for the growth and the maintenance of us as individuals. And individually, when we have these things in our life, when we're getting a constant supply of the Word of God, our prayer life is consistent. When that's consistent in the heart of a local church, then you're going to have a strong, thriving, living church. So, in addition to supplying these things, supplying the nutrients and all these different things, we also noted the idea of removal. There's some things that need to be removed. So spiritually speaking, we ask this question, what carnal waste must be removed in order for us to be heart healthy. Now, there's a lot of things when we obey the gospel, we, we, have to, we have to get rid of some things in our life. And we have to continually purge those things out as they creep back in. Number one, I would suggest to you that worldliness must be removed. You know, one of the greatest problems that has plagued the local church for many, many years throughout history and has led to the death of many of those churches is the problem of worldliness. The heart of those dying or dead churches are filled with carnality, which once again means there's individuals within that local church who claim to be following Christ. They may even, they may even come every Sunday morning and Sunday night and, and Wednesday night if they don't have something better to do. 
and, and th- th- they may come to those services, but but really they they've not removed the vices from their life, the sin, the worldliness from their life. And when this is the case, you're inevitably going to find a church that's dying because it has a heart that's dying. You know, when I claim to be a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, yet I dress like the world, I talk like the world, I allow myself to be entertained by by just doing godly, wicked things, I allow secular activities to take precedence over assembling with my brothers and sisters in Christ, what I'm doing is I'm contributing to the disease that can ultimately lead to the death of the local church of which I'm part of. I want you to consider these questions with me. Can a Christian sit through a movie that profanes the name of our great God and it not impact their lives? you think about that question because sometimes Christians have argued with me before that, that they can watch R-rated movies because they're kind of above that. That, that, that those words as if God's name being profaned as if that doesn't affect them. It's always bothered me that they think they're above that and, and even if they felt they were that spiritually strong, why in the world would you want to sit there and listen to somebody cuss your creator? Just, just totally profane his name. So, so we ask this question again, can a Christian sit through a movie that profanes the name of our great God and did not impact their life? What about this one? Can we allow ourselves to be entertained by television shows that glorify adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and not be affected by it? It's very difficult to find a, a television show, a, a drama or a sitcom or whatever it may be, where the backdrop is not one of these things, adultery, fornication, or homosexuality. There's some form of it in everything that we turn on our television sets, in every movie, and every. And what's getting sad is it's kind of the back story now because it is so common. You can't find a show where there's not a, 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 a family that's been divided, and it's just kind of the way it is. And the books in the library now, the schools now, Bobby has two daddies, or or, or Jane has two mommies, or whatever, and, and these things are being just planted into the heart of our young people and of our older people for that matter. So as a child of God, I want us to think about this individually as Christians, as a child of God, because what we want to do is keep our local churches strong and thriving and be able to be good soldiers of Christ and put up a fight and a defense against these things. But if we are allowing ourselves to be entertained by things such as this, then what are we doing to ourselves? We are making ourselves weak as Christians, and if we're weak as Christians when we come together, all we're going to have then is a, is a group of weak Christians. We have to strengthen ourselves individually. What about this one? Can we eventually forsake the assembly of the saints for secular entertainment and not grow weak? Sometimes people talk about that they, they're, just, they're just struggling with their Christian life. Well, the problem with that many times is you just show up for Sunday morning service. You don't come to Bible study. You don't come to Sunday night. Forget Wednesday night, and sure don't ask me to come out on a gospel meeting night when Kentucky's playing across town. And we, we can't do that. The traffic's going to be too bad. Or we got to stay home and watch that. It's a big game against Auburn. We win that. We're going bowling. We can get one more after that. Is that right? But, but people's priorities sometimes are wrong. Now, I'm not saying anyone's in sin if they're over at the football game tonight. But I'm just saying usually there's a pattern. There's a pattern behind those things. What about this one? Can one secretly view pornography and it not pollute and contaminate their mind? And we're, again, we're approaching this from the individual standpoint. Can we, can we allow these things in our lives as Christians and it not only affect our soul but affect the local work of which we're a part of? You know, the proverb writer answers this question. He asks a couple simple questions in regards, can a man go into a, another man's wife? He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Well, we understand the answer to that question. It's clear what it is that, that God is trying to get across to us here. 
So the answer is no to those questions, and it's the same answer as to these questions here. And we, again, we can make a list a mile long of things that as individual Christians, we, we turn our head to, to sin sometimes, and we don't identify it, we don't look at it. These are things that need to be removed in our life. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 in regards to the works of the flesh, says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, sedition, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, reveling, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Not going to inherit the kingdom of God if we're involving ourselves in these things. Works of the flesh have no place in the church. And when you have a collective group that tolerates sin, you have a collective group that turns a blind eye to immorality and fails to remove the worldliness from the local body, you can rest assured that it is filled with members who have failed to remove the carnality and immorality from their lives. You, you, you can look at a church. When a church is, has these things in it and you see worldliness and you see this, this not really... Well, you can trace it back and look at the individual members because you don't have a church if you don't have the individual members. So, so we have to work on the problem individually. Consider the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There Paul writes to that church and they had the problem of sexual immorality in it. And it was being tolerated. Paul says there's fornication among you and he says it is, is of such a nature that he says that even the Gentiles, they won't put up with it. They won't even tolerate it. He says a man has his father's wife. Paul says, this is something you should be upset about. This is something you ought to be mourning. This is something you ought to be dealing with. But he says, you're puffed up about it. You're puffed up about it. You've not mourned that he that has done this thing might be taken from you. Why weren't they dealing with that problem? Why, why, why was the church at Corinth not dealing with this sin problem amidst one of their members? It was because individually in their lives they weren't heart healthy. We had a very carnal, very worldly church here. There were certain things that they were not receiving spiritually that was going to help them grow. That They didn't even know who they were baptized in in chapter 1. You just go each chapter and you see the worldliness and the carnality and the spiritual immaturity. And there were certainly things that they were failing to remove in their lives. A failure to collectively deliver this errant brother to Satan for the destruction of the flesh was a direct result of their failure to remove the carnal waste from their lives. You know, if we want to be a heart-healthy church, we have to... We have to get that carnality out. We have to get that worldliness out. Without that purging, without that purging in our individual lives, the collective group which we're a part of is going to be contaminated. Paul teaches us that in the down in verse number six. He says, Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Down in verse number eight he says, Not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and with truth. That destruction is not going to be followed by a church whose individual members will not purge the things out of their life needs to be removed. I wonder sometimes how many Christians have condemned this homosexual marriage, yet goes home that very night and turns on the television show and watches some drama that is just filled with it. And that's the case because we have Facebook in our day and time, and Facebook tells us. Facebook tells what people are doing, what they're watching, what they're doing in their lives. It's hypocritical. It doesn't help the church grow. It tears the church down. Number two, I would suggest also that pride. Pride must be removed. It must be taken out of our Christian lives. Notice again the text there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul said about this sin, he says, you're puffed up. About this blatant sin going on, you're puffed up about it. Other translations say you're proud, you're arrogant. God's word, God's word translation says you're being arrogant when you should have been more upset about this. 
if you'd been upset, the man who did this would have been removed from among you. So we can conclude then that one of the things that the, the church at Corinth were failing to remove, uh, one of the things of carnal waste there was in regards to pride. They were puffed up. They were arrogant and prideful about this situation because within their individual lives, they, they carried with them this, this carnal pride. There's no place again for that type of attitude in the body of Christ. Where pride and arrogance is found, a dying church is going to be found. Selfish pride doesn't deal with sin, and that's the problem. On an individual level, how many times have you known of someone who refuses to acknowledge and repent of an obvious sin, but instead makes excuse after excuse after excuse for his or her actions because they have too much pride to admit that they're wrong? They can't see their sin. But what I want to do with this is I, as I was looking at this today, I want us to take the, the someone, the his, the her, the they, and the there out. I want us to make this personal. On an individual level, how many times have I, and I'm talking to me right now, you can talk to yourself, on an individual level, how many times have I refused to acknowledge and repent of an obvious sin but instead make excuse after excuse for my actions because I have too much pride to admit that I am wrong, I am so arrogant that I cannot see my sin. You know, it's easy for me to say they, their, him, her, them people over there, but, but when I put the I in there, in the my, in the me, and I start looking at myself, how many times have I been guilty of that? Well, pride and arrogance say, well, I've never been guilty of that. But that's absolutely not true. I can think, as I was doing this today, I, and I was thinking about this particular point here today, I was thinking about times in my life where I was just trying every way in the world to make an excuse to, to say, well, I wasn't wrong in that. I, I, I just, I, I didn't mean that, or so-and-so made me do it, or whatever it may be. What we need to do is just do this self-examination. Just be honest with ourselves. Now, I'm a broken sinner that needs the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we get it down to that level and we're willing to admit our sin, admit our wrong, and just push that pride and arrogance to the side, then we're going to be in a position where we can call heaven our home. Because pride and arrogance turns a blind eye to sin. Sin's what separates us from God. We see it example after example throughout God's word. King Saul, Ananias, and Sapphira, we could look at character after character throughout God's word where pride was the problem. I didn't do anything wrong. Got to cast those things out. If not, we're going to have a very adverse effect on the local group that we're worshiping with. More prideful and arrogant members of local church, the quicker the church will die. The church itself, in which Jesus died for, was founded in humility. Philippians chapter two, verse seven, speaking of Jesus, says, "Made himself of no reputation, took on." Upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. No place for selfish pride within the church that Christ humbly died for. It's a tragedy when a church finds itself dying or dead for several reasons. But one thing, as I was thinking about a way to, to think about how just how bad this was, and there's several things we can talk about. But the one thing that makes it most tragic in my mind is the irreverence and the disrespect that is shown for the price that was paid. That price being the blood of Jesus. Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28. He tells them to take heed therefore to yourselves to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Let's come to a close this evening. I suggest to you that the price paid for the church it's too great for us to behave and live in such a way that would contribute to its spiritual death or ultimate loss of our soul. Innocent man died for, for us upon the cross because we couldn't pay for our sins. 
the churches of Asia who were either dying or dead, the simple message from our Lord was that they needed to repent. We see that in every single one. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, that they needed to repent. As bad a shape as some of these churches were in and some of the things that they were going through, Jesus is saying, if you will repent, if, if you will turn, turn around, if you'll start serving me, then I'll come in, I'll have fellowship with you, I'll, I'll sup with you, or I'll give you the crown of life, or just he describes it in some beautiful way. And that's the invitation this evening to anyone here as a child of God who may be living in a way that separates you from God. Because what you need to know and what I need to know is if I'm living in a way that separated me from God, then I'm not only affecting myself, I'm also affecting the local church that I'm worshiping with. But the good news is the same admonition that Jesus gave these churches here is the same admonition that he's given you and I. He's asking us to repent. To make a decision to change tonight. First John chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, if we'll confess our sin, and if we confess our sin, he's, he's just, and he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're here this evening and you aren't part of the body of Christ. Maybe you've Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Jesus is extending that invitation to you this evening through his word to obey his gospel plan of salvation. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Scripture says that our faith comes by hearing the word of God. When we hear the things that God's revealed to us, that should build faith in us, should make us want to serve him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Told that without faith it's impossible to please him. Those who would come to him must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. Jesus there encourages us to repent. He says, unless you repent, you will perish. We've got to make that change of heart that results in a change of life. We must be willing to make that great confession that, that Peter made there in Matthew 16, 16, when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after Peter preached that great gospel sermon, and he, he convicted the, the hearers in that crowd, and there were some who were pricked in the heart. They realized they had crucified the Messiah one spoken of in the prophets. They, they knew what they had done. They wanted to know what they needed to do to make that right. He very simply said, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then we need to remain faithful unto death. That was the message to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, and verse 10. And let's never forget that we have all of this available to us. It's provided to us by the good grace of God. If you've never obeyed the gospel or you need to make something right with Jesus this evening, we're going to ask you to take care of that now.